Most of us know Boston is a city filled with history. Plaques, statues, monuments that remind us of significant moments in life, in history of this city and the world. But for me at least, and maybe for you, in the busyness of life, I so often don't notice those things. Walk right by them, giving little thought to, to locations where very important things happened. But then occasionally, I'm startled by something really significant. As I go by and I'm reminded, that is the very first Dunkin' Donuts. Like, that, what a beautiful location, very important in the history of the world. Or I'm walking by and I see a sign, George Washington and Army walked by here. Or Paul Revere rode there. And I'm reminded that there really are key moments in history, the history of this nation, and even of the world that happened right here. But then the routine and the busyness of life caused me to again be forgetful. In fact, this forgetfulness for most of those events have really little impact on our day-to-day lives. But there is a form of forgetfulness that can be very dangerous. And there's a great value to a certain kind of remembering for all of us that we'll see in our passage today. So if you have a Bible, turn with me to the Old Testament book of 1 Samuel. Today we're in 1 Samuel chapter 7, starting in verse 3. I invite you to open up a copy of the Bible or a Bible app. And the Bible's near you. You can find it on page 230. Page 230. If you're newer to reading the Bible, when you open it up, the larger numbers, the chapter numbers, we're in chapter 7. The smaller numbers are verse numbers. We'll start in verse 3. I'll mention those throughout our time together as we walk through this chapter. If you don't own a copy of the Bible, we as a church would love to give you one. Following the service at the back of the room, there's a table, that's a sign that says free Bibles, a stack of Bibles there. Please just grab one of those, take it with you today as our gift to you. So today we're continuing our series in 1 Samuel that we're calling In Search of a King. And in recent weeks, we've seen how the Israelites found themselves facing a battle with a neighboring nation, the Philistines. The battle was fought, Israel suffered a great defeat. In their desperation, then Israel decided what they would do is they would go and get what was called the Ark of God, a a special chest that God had instructed his people to build, that carried the Ten Commandments, that carried uh, Aaron's staff, uh, and that that this Ark would be a place where God would uniquely dwell near his people in the tabernacle. And so they decided, we'll bring the Ark to sort of force God to deliver us, to rescue us. Even though God had never directed them to do such, they did. And so they brought it in. The Israelites were were emboldened by this, encouraged, thinking surely they will win. The Philistines were fearful in light of this. And so there was this great battle, but the Israelites lost. The the priest Eli's two wicked sons were killed in battle, just as the Lord had prophesied they would as an act of judgment for their rebellion. And most of all, the most devastating part of the loss was that the ark of God was taken away by the Philistines, a sort of trophy or spoil of defeat. We saw last week then that the ark was taken back to the land of Philistia. It was first placed in the house of one of their gods, Dagon. And the next morning they went in to find that the statue of Dagon had fallen face down before the ark in a, in a sort of act of submission or apparently what it would look like worshiping. So the people set the statue back up. The next day they went in, though, and and they found the statue of Dacon. His hands were cut off, his head was cut off, and still laying face down. And then in city after city, wherever the ark went, the people of Philistia were uh, impacted with tumors that began to affect all of them. So it was great fear and devastation among the people. And so finally they said, we're just going to send it back to Israel. 
And so they did, and that's where we ended last week. And at the end of our reading last week, chapter 7, verse 2, we're told that 20 years passed. And then we pick it up today, chapter 7, verse 3. So look with me, 1 Samuel 7, beginning in verse 3. And Samuel said to all the house of Israel, if you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtoreth from among you and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only. And he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtoreth and they served the Lord only. Then Samuel said, gather all Israel at Mizpah and I will pray to the Lord for you. So they gathered at Mizpah and drew water and poured it out before the Lord and fasted on that day and said there, we have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the people of Israel at Mizpah. Now when the Philistines heard that the people of Israel had gathered at Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. When the people of Israel heard of it, they were afraid of the Philistines. And the people of Israel said to Samuel, do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. So Samuel took a nursing lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel and the Lord answered him. As Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to attack Israel. But the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion. And they were defeated before Israel. And the men of Israel went out from Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and struck them as far as below Bethkar. Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shin and called its name Ebenezer. For he said, till now the Lord has helped us. So the Philistines were subdued and did not again enter the territory of Israel. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. The cities that the Philistines had taken from Israel were restored to Israel, from Ekron to Gath, and Israel delivered their territory from the hand of the Philistines. There was peace also between Israel and the Amorites. Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life. And he went on a circuit year by year to Bethel, Gilgal, and Mizpah. And he judged Israel in all these places. Then he would return to Ramah, for his home was there. There also he judged Israel, and he built there an altar to the Lord. This morning in our passage, we'll see this emphasis. Keep returning to the Lord and keep remembering his help. Keep returning to the Lord and keep remembering his help. And we'll look at our passage in three different parts. So first we'll see a call to return. Second, we'll see a call for help. And third, a call to remember. So a call to, remember, or a call to return, a call for help, and a call to remember. So first we see a call to return in verses three and four. If you're with us the last couple of weeks, Samuel was a key player at the beginning of the book. And then from chapters four to six, he disappears. He's not in the book at all. And then now he returns in our passage today. In those previous chapters, we'd seen how Samuel, as a young boy, was brought to the tabernacle. He lived in the area of the tabernacle, was raised by Eli the priest. While Eli's two sons were, were wicked, ongoing in their sin and rebellion, Samuel loved the Lord. He was growing in maturity and godliness. And at times, Samuel was called as a prophet for the Lord. So that when Samuel spoke, it was the Lord himself speaking through Samuel. Samuel also would have this role, as we mentioned in our text today, that as a judge. This is towards the end of the time of the judges from the book of Judges. 
So there'd be certain people set apart by God for a role of kind of leadership, some measure of trying to hold out justice for God's people. And then Samuel also played a priestly role as well. Now, as I mentioned in chapter 7, verse 2, 20 years had passed. So for 20 years, Samuel played the role of prophet, proclaiming the word of God to the people of God, calling them to trust in their God, and yet God's people continued in their rebellion. So here, chapter 7, verse 3, Samuel calls people to return to the Lord, to turn back to the Lord. You might say, well, return from where? Of course, Samuel's not alluding to a physical place, but they will return with their hearts. So he says, returning to the Lord with all your heart. Biblically, the heart is the very center of who we are. And all people are constantly aligning our hearts, our allegiance, in any number of directions. So their hearts had been elsewhere. Now he's calling to return. So evidently, God's people had been worshiping, directing their hearts, their trust to these other gods called Ashtoreth, Baal, these other gods that, that many other nations worshiped. So they're to put away, to get rid of. Instead, direct their hearts to the Lord alone and serve him. Now, this was not a new teaching that Samuel was starting. This was not new to God's people. At the very beginning of God's guidance for them, what we call the Ten Commandments, the very first commandment in Exodus 20, the Lord says this, you shall have no other gods before me. So that's the first commandment, no other gods, no worshiping, no directing of your heart to any other God. Now, this call to return to the Lord is something we also often refer to as repentance. It's a term we find across the scriptures. To repent is to change one's mind, heart, to change one's life direction. So as if I've been walking this way, my mind, my heart is directed this way, and now I'm called back to, to repent is to turn back in a completely different direction. So that's what he's doing when he's calling them to return. He's calling them to repent, to, to turn their heart back. But notice Samuel calls them to return, to repent, but he doesn't say, say that you're returning. Tell me that you're returning, but he calls them to give evidence of their return. There's something that they need to do to show that they're returning. So he describes it this way, put away all other gods. So that they would literally have often statues, emblems that they would worship. So he's saying, put those away. Physically, take an action, give evidence of this return, and now then direct your heart and begin to serve the Lord only. And this would not be easy for them to push aside these other gods because every neighboring nation, there were numerous nations close by, had many gods. Everyone had multiple gods. So the call to worship one God, the one true God, was a unique calling. So it certainly put them out of step with all the neighboring peoples around them. Now, it's important to consider, well, who is this God that Samuel is calling them to return to? What is he like? was calling them back to their covenant-keeping God, their gracious, saving, delivering, helping God, God who delivered them in the past. In Exodus 20, just before the Lord gives them the Ten Commandments, here's what it says in Exodus 20. The Lord says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. So historically, God's people had been enslaved in Egypt with no way of saving themselves. 
And yet the Lord delivered them out of slavery, not by the Israelites fighting their way out, but in fact, they did nothing. The Lord simply delivered them. He rescued them as an act of his grace, his mercy, and his love. So then after saving them, then he says, here's how you're to live as my covenant people. He didn't say when they were in slavery in Egypt, if you'll follow these commands, then I'll save you. But he saved them and then said, here's how you're to live as my covenant people. And so that's who Samuel's calling them back to. The God who has saved you in the past. Your gracious God, turn back to him. This is always the call for God's people to direct our heart to the Lord alone and to no other gods. And in fact, it's a gracious call because these other gods have no power. They were unable to save Israel, friends. They're unable to save us. They offered no grace to Israel, friends. They would offer no grace, no mercy, no love to us. So so it is loving for God to say, don't trust in any other gods. They can't ultimately help you. Trust only in me. The call is always return or repent and trust in God alone. We see that in the the, the ministry of Jesus. As Jesus in in Mark chapter 1 begins his uh, ministry here, Uh, Among us, we see Mark 1, Jesus preaches and he says, repent and believe the good news. So that's the call. Repent, return, and believe the good news. After Jesus' death and resurrection, ascension, the people of God, Christians, begin to preach. And what's the message we see again and again in the book of Acts? They, They preach and people say, what are we to do? And the message is this, repent and believe. Turn back and believe. So this is the message again and again. And friends, it's the call for us today. But if you're here and you're not a Christian, we're so glad you would give part of your Sunday morning with us. And the message of Christianity is not kind of self-improvement. It's not of you know, becoming intellectually informed to the extent that now finally we can live rightly, but it is that in fact we've gone our own way, we've loved going our own way, we've rejected God's way, and we have no means on our own of even turning back. But... This gracious God came pursuing us as we're going the other way. He came pursuing us in the coming year of Jesus Christ, God the Son. And Jesus then ultimately lived a perfect life that we would never live. He, he died on the cross as a substitute for us. Enduring the judgment that we deserve for our rebellion, for going the other way. He died and was buried, resurrected on the third day to provide as a gift, only as a gift, this salvation. Held out to any and all who receive it by faith. For if you're not a Christian, the way that we become a Christian is that we repent. We understand, I've been going my own way. I understand Jesus alone is the one who can save. So I, I repent, I turn by faith from where I was going and turn to Christ. And friend, we'd love for you to explore more who Jesus is with us to the extent that you're comfortable doing that. Or maybe you've been exploring for some time, friend, even months or years, and maybe today's the day to repent and place your faith in Jesus alone. So we become Christians as we repent and believe. This is also the continuing pattern for all Christians. For those saved by grace, we still struggle with sin. We're still prone to wander. We're still prone to direct our hearts to other things. And so the call continues to be, return, repent. We're always aware and repenting and turning back. 
Because we're all aware that we're, we're tempted to, to build up our own little idols, functional gods, very real temptation for every single one of us. In fact, the wise Christian is the one who is alert to this danger and therefore is always on the lookout to, to detect and to displace and sometimes to destroy idols in our own hearts. So friends, we are to keep returning. Not just return once, but to keep returning. But it's worth considering what are some of the potential other gods, functional gods, idols that you and I might trust in. Now, you may or may not have a physical idol in your home. You may have one. But in our hearts, it's so tempting to look to something other than the one true God, to be for us a savior, to provide for us meaning, significance, to somehow make life worth living. And so many people, we look for relationships to do for us what only God can do. We think if we have the right relationship or if we, if we get it right this time or, or often sexual activity connected to relationships, we think that alone will save, give meaning, give significance. Or so often it's, it's some measure of success, achievement, either in the workplace or on the campus. And so we've begun to believe that, that if I finally make it to that rung on the ladder, then I'll be someone. If I uh, obtain this degree, then I will have what but I really need to have a life that's worth living. Or sometimes it's in material possessions. But a certain amount accumulated or saved or invested or purchased, that that is what makes life really worth living. Or, or so often it's the approval, the applause of others. That there are some or, or some numerous people in our lives that we're longing for their approval. And if we could just finally get it, if they would just say, well done, if they would just say, I'm proud of you, we think that would do it. And that we chase and we chase and it never comes. And the devastating part is if we do actually obtain some of these things, for a time they may make us think it's, it's sufficient, but they're never enough. So you hit the rung of the ladder, but then you get there and you find out this actually wasn't worth my entire life. But I've invested all that I have in it. Well, this relationship really doesn't do for me what I thought it would do, and I'm crushed by that. So, friend, I wonder, do you know what the functional gods or the idols that are most tempting for you? What is it that you're prone to look to? And of course, a part of the challenge for us, like the Israelites, is that everyone else around us are chasing after embracing these idols. So it looks completely normal to chase those idols. What looks abnormal is if you choose not to. If you choose not to run after those things, it won't make sense to those around you. So it will be tempting then for it not to make sense to us either. True repentance, like for Israel, leads to action. So Samuel says, put away the idol. So it is for us, friends, when we're truly repenting, we may have to think through what does it look like to, to set those idols aside? Perhaps what in your life fuels your trust in this idol? Like, yeah, I need to have less conversations with this person about this topic because it just returns my heart to that. Or watching this or reading that, observing this, just fuels that. 
So are there steps you'll need to take to set aside these idols? The good news, friends, is that Jesus Christ, our King, wants something different for us. He wants us to be free of these idols. And friend, if you're a Christian, the Spirit is in you, and so therefore, He will help you. Any step you take to, to displace idols and to redirect your heart to God, Jesus will help you with that. So friend, where is your heart directed today? And do you need in some way to return to the Lord? We see in verse 4 that the people respond by doing what Samuel had called them to do. They put away these other gods and they serve the Lord only. So we see a call to return, but then second, we see a call for help in verses 5 through 11. So in response, Samuel tells them all to come to this place called Mizpah. And he says, come there and I will pray for you. We see the people gather, they, they draw water and they pour it out. We're not clear exactly what is meant by this, but in some way it seems some means of repentance, an outward display of their confession of sin and repentance. The people also fasted and look at verse 6. They say, we have sinned against the Lord. So they're repenting and now they're confessing their sin corporately to the Lord. And friends, this is a healthy rhythm for the Christian life as well. That's why on a corporate level, each Sunday morning, we do what we just did a few minutes ago. We confess our sin to God. And I think for, for many people who don't normally attend church, and even for some Christians, it can feel strange. Like, are we, are we groveling before God or are we condemning ourselves? But in fact, what we're doing is we're being wise enough to admit, though saved by grace, we still struggle with sin. So we don't hide in that sin. We confess it. We come clean about it. And by this confession, that's where freedom is found, not by holding on to sin, by acknowledging it to the Lord. So we do it together, but not only together, friends, we're, we're helped to do this in just the regular rhythm of our lives personally as well. We say we have sinned against the Lord. Samuel then continues his role as he judges the people, providing this leadership, uh, exerting justice for God's people. But we see in verse 7, all of Israel gathers at Mizpah. So this is a, a big gathering of people, and word reaches the Philistines, and they're like, what's going on? Why are they all gathered together? Are they about to stage some sort of a war against us? So we see the Philistines gather together, and they go to attack the Israelites. So the Israelites hear that the Philistines heard about their gathering, and so they say, what's going to happen? The Israelites are, are fearful. We see verse 8, they say to Samuel, do not cease to cry out to the Lord for us that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. So they say to Samuel, please pray for us that God might save us. We see verse 9, Samuel does that. He takes a lamb, he offers it as a burnt offering. He cries out to the Lord for Israel. And we see in verse 10 that as Samuel was offering the burnt offering, the Philistines are drawing near. And you can feel the tension in the text and, and imagine the scene. So Israel's here, Philistines are getting closer and closer, and the Israelites know it, and they're terrified. Samuel is here offering this burnt offering, and he's praying. I mean, it looks like a disaster is about to happen. In fact, a, a an incredible defeat in, is imminent. And what is Israel doing? Watching Samuel. We would think the council would be, okay, now's the time, get your weapons. Or now's the time, run, because here come the Philistines. But they don't. Instead, though filled with fear, they wait. And they watch as Samuel prays. And what would happen, look at verse 10, the Philistines draw near, because the text says, but 
the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion and they were defeated before Israel. So as they approach, Samuel prays and there's this great thundering, so much so that it throws the people into confusion and they're defeated by this thundering. We see in verse 11, the men of Israel do pursue them, but the battle is already over. They've already been defeated before Israel does anything. So we see this really stunning turn of events. The army is coming. Israel seemingly is headed towards a horrible defeat, but the Lord intervenes and he saves his people. He defeats the Philistines without Israel needing to fight at all. Now this act from the Lord is some of what we'd seen back at the beginning of this book in 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 10. This key woman at the beginning, Hannah, after receiving the gift of a child, prayed this prayer. And one part of the prayer, Sam, uh, 1 Samuel 2.10 says this. This is Hannah's prayer. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. So this is ahead of time. The Lord says this is what's going to happen, and that's what happens. The Lord thunders in heaven and delivers his people. Friends, we see that God's ways are so very different from the normal ways of the world. It would not make sense. The armies are coming to just wait and pray. It seems irrational, foolish to not take up your weapons. At the very least, to run. And we've seen previously, Israel facing a fight, tried to take the ark and they lost. Israel was learning some lessons here. Friends, thankfully, we can learn lessons too. We too can make mistakes as we follow Jesus and we can learn and make progress. We too can move away from self-reliance, our own crafty plans, and trust the Lord's plans, cry out to him for help. So God's people asked Samuel to pray for them. And it was appropriate for them to ask Samuel to do it because he did play a unique role in this kind of prophet-priest role. He had unique access to God that the average Israelite didn't. But, friends, that has changed today. So, for instance, your elders, your pastors of this church, we love to pray for you. We, we encourage you to, to let us know how we can pray for you. But also, we want to be clear on this. Your elders, your pastors, I, we do not have any more access to God than you do. Samuel did, I don't. Sometimes people who genuinely come to me asking me to pray, and sometimes like legitimately saying, and at the very least believing that somehow they think I have more access to God than they do. Friends, that's just not true. Because the good news is now through Jesus Christ, every single one of us have direct access to the Father through him. That's why we have no more priests because you don't need a, a human go-between because Jesus is the final high priest. So yes, please do let us know how we can pray for you, but don't be confused and thinking we offer special prayers and do pray for yourself. Know that your father hears you. Ask for his help. Our enemies are also different now. We're no longer a geopolitical nation facing another army, but instead the apostle Paul says it this way, Ephesians chapter six, verse 12. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So friends, as Christians, that's what we understand is going on in the world. There are these very real spiritual forces at work in the world. 
leading people to do all sort of disastrous, evil things. But people are not our enemy. And so we pray. We cry out to the Lord for help, that he would deliver, that he would save, that he would transform. The Lord delivered Israel, friends, and he will deliver us. We live in hope, it's true, of a, a final greater deliverance. And we're not always in this life delivered from everything. Very often, Christians suffer, face disease, brokenness, disappointment, dark valleys. So we're not always delivered in this life, but we live in hope of a day that is coming when finally on that day we will be fully delivered. So friend, do you see that you have access today to cry out to the Lord for help? And I hope that you'll do that today, even in these moments, right now, right where you are, friend, you can silently cry out to your Lord for help. So we see a call for help. And then third, we see a call to remember. A call to remember in verses 12 through 17. So after the Lord answers Samuel's prayer, delivers Israel, we see verse 12, Samuel took a stone, set it up between Mizpah and Shin, and he calls the stone Ebenezer. Now we're told the word Ebenezer means stone of help. And upon setting up the stone, Samuel says, I'm setting this up because till now the Lord has helped us. So he's saying until now or thus far the Lord has helped us. So what's the point of this stone? Would it be a stone to remind? A stone of remembrance, a, a monument to remind God's people. So that in the future, let's say a family went by and they saw this stone that the kids might say to their parents, what's this stone mean? The parents would say, oh, that's Ebenezer. And they would retell the story of God's rescuing his people from the Philistines in that place and at that time. This is not the first time that God's people had set up some stones like this. Previously, they've set up piles of stones. They've named it as a means of remembering, reminding themselves of what God has done. This is also not the first time in the book of 1 Samuel we've heard the name Ebenezer. Previously, when they were about to fight the Philistines, the Israelites were encamped at a, a location that was called Ebenezer. So they were at a town called Ebenezer as they awaited and as they fought. So they were located, staying at this place called the Stone of Help, Ebenezer. But what happened is Israel fought two battles, and it was at Ebenezer that they lost the ark. The worst of all defeats. The Lord had refused to help his people because they were not relying upon him. They were trying to manipulate him instead. So Ebenezer would be remembered as a place of defeat. Ebenezer would be a dark name in the history of Israel because of the infamy of what had happened there. So defeat happens at Ebenezer. But then after that word came back of the ark being taken, Eli, the priest, died. We saw that his daughter-in-law was pregnant, went into labor. And even as she's dying, she gives birth to a son. And she says, name my son Ichabod. Because the glory of the Lord has departed. That, that when the ark was taken. The glory of the Lord is gone. So, so we've gone from the darkness of the devastating loss at Ebenezer to the darkness of Ichabod. The glory is gone. But here, Ebenezer has a new meaning. It's no longer the place of defeat. 
said now, it reminds of this great delivering victory of God. The Lord had again powerfully and faithfully shown himself to be their source of help. So Samuel wants to remind all of God's people, till now the Lord has helped us. Now, if you're more skeptical, like some of us in Boston can be, we might read Samuel's words as if he's saying, well, he has helped us up until now, but we'll see what happens after that. But friend, in fact, the sense of the statement is this. From the very beginning of us as a people, God has helped us. So he came to Abram and he made Abraham a great nation. They were enslaved in Egypt. He had helped them. He had brought them out of slavery. He had helped them and brought them into the land he had promised them. He had again and again helped this rebellious people till they again and again wandered away. He helped them. He waited for them. He pursued them. He loved them. So the story is again and again, though they would forsake their God, he would not forsake them. He was always faithful to help his people. His help continues in our text. We see the Philistines were subdued because the hand of the Lord was against them. The cities the Philistines had taken were given back to Israel. There was peace, we're told, with the Amorites, and Samuel continues his faithful ministry and leadership of Israel. Friends, God had helped Israel in their history, in the distant past, and he had helped them then at Mizpah, and he continued to help them. Their stone was set up so they would not forget how their God had helped them that they wouldn't forget and that their faith and confidence wouldn't grow weak because they had forgotten. Friend, forgetfulness can be tremendously detrimental to our faith and confidence in God. So very tempting to forget God's past faithfulness. In the distant past and even yesterday, most of us, myself included, are prone to forget what God has done for us. And it's so very easy to remember what we perceive at least God hasn't done for us. We forgot his past saving words. We think, I, I've prayed and that's never been answered. I've endured and longed for that and it hasn't happened. So often real disappointments that we all do face in this world grow bigger God's past acts are so easily forgotten. So we want to diligently fight forgiveness and fight forgetfulness and cultivate a life marked by remembering. Now, there is a living in the past that can be helpful if we were only remembering our, our past exploits or the exploits of another person. When I was growing up, there, were, there was a guy in our, our town that was about 20 years older than us who was uh, an incredible football player. So he was the state player of the year, numerous Division I offers, and they won three state championships. And I remember as a kid seeing him, and someone said, that's Arthur Crosby. I'm thinking like, wow, that guy's awesome. And when I was in high school, as we were about to play football, we never said, hey, Arthur, you should come play with us. Because 20 years had passed. He had matured a little bit. He wasn't in quite as good a shape as he once was. He, he was not going to come and put on pads to play with us and help us because his exploits were over in the past. There were no more exploits for him to have. For just be clear, when we remember what God has done, we're not remembering a God who has done these things in the past but is unable to help us today. But friend, the same God who delivered from Egypt 
is the same God who delivers through the cross of Christ, is the same God who's with us today. He has not grown old. He's not grown weak. The same faithful, loving, delivering, helping God is the God we remember today. And friends, that is good news for us. Now, as we remember, as Christians, what are we to remember? What, what are the stones that we set up? Well, one, we have a shared remembrance with all Christians around the world and across all times of remembering the ultimate stone of remembrance is the cross and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So it's the empty cross of Christ, Jesus, who went to the cross for sinners like us, bearing our sin and our shame, who was buried, placed in a tomb, but, but rose triumphant, so the tomb is empty. So friends, for Christians at all times and all ways, we, we treasure that, we remember that. So when we gather each week, we, we treasure that. So for instance, as we receive the Lord's Supper, we remember that. Christ's body broken for us, his blood shed for us. We celebrate baptism. We remember it as, as it's portrayed as buried with Christ and raised with Christ. But we not only remember the baptism of the person being baptized, but friend, if you're a Christian, you should remember yours as well. So friends, we remember what Christ has done. Every Sunday as we gather, we, we sing of the cross and the resurrection. We read God's word. We, we pray about it. And so we're reminded each week as we gather. And friends, forgetfulness is so dangerous and isolation speeds up forgetfulness. So friends, that's why as a Christian, you need God's people with you. That's why there's more to the Christian life than gathering each week. But the wise Christian says, even when I don't feel like gathering, I need to gather because they will lift my mind to remember the stone of remembrance, Christ's cross and his empty tomb. All Christians everywhere remember those. There's also some remembering we might do as a particular church. So Help Fellowship Church is about 20 years old. And across the last 20 years, there are stories of God's help. Stones of remembrance for us, of, of lives transformed, lives saved. Endurance, suffering, and God's grace through it all. So friends, for me, you are the stones of remembrance here. So as I have the vantage point to know so many of the stories in this room, friends, God's grace towards you, his faithfulness to you is, is our stones of remembrance. But then also at the personal level, in our own lives, in our own families, we, we also there have particular stones of remembrance. So if you're a Christian, remember, when did you first hear the good news of Jesus Christ? Remember, when was it you came to faith in Jesus? Remember the beauty of baptism, being brought up out of the water. Remember those times of desperation. She cried out and God was faithful. Even as we do have unanswered prayers, even as we do face mystery, remember what God has done for you. And because we're prone to forget. We so often need others with us to help us remember. So we need friendships that, that grow over time, other people who love Jesus. So when I'm prone to forget everything, someone can come alongside and say, I just want to lovingly remind you of that stone and that one and that one five years ago and that one 12 years ago. And most of all, I want to remind you of Jesus' cross and his resurrection. 
So friend, I wonder, have you begun to forget the power of the cross? Have you forgotten God's faithfulness in your own story and life? Samuel had said, till now the Lord has been our help. Well, friends, this till now fuels hope that will help us till then. Till then is the return of Christ. The day is coming when Christ will return and finally his help will be complete. But till then, we'll hold on to, we'll cling to, we'll trust in till now. Till now, God has been our help and we believe he will continue to till now be our hope until then. We remember God's help in the past that we might stand secure and hopeful, persevering in the present, even while we have a sure hope for our future in Jesus Christ. You may have sung a hymn before that has this word Ebenezer in it. And if you're like me, you may have sung the hymn and thought, I don't know why that word is there. I don't know what the word is mean, but we're just gonna sing the hymn. Well, friends, the hymn, the verse goes like this. Here I raise my Ebenezer. Here by thy help I've come. And I hope by thy good pleasure safely to arrive at home. Well, friends, the hymn writer was writing about this episode. The episode he writes of, this Ebenezer is the same Ebenezer. So he's saying, here I raise my Ebenezer. He, a Christian, generations later, lifts up by faith this Ebenezer, this stone of help, reminding himself what Christ has done. And he says, here, by thy great help I've come. Till now, the Lord has brought me here. And I hope, I trust, by thy good pleasure, safely to arrive at home. So in just a moment, we're going to sing that song together. Just let me encourage you as we sing that verse, here I raise my Ebenezer. Friend, lift your, your mind, your heart of faith to remember our Ebenezer, the cross of Christ, the empty tomb of Christ, but also remember your Ebenezer, the particular stones of God's faithfulness in your life. Maybe remember ours as a shared church as well. And when it says, when we sing, I hope by thy good pleasure, friends, this, this is the Christian hope. This isn't a, there's a chance it's going to happen, but it, it's a sure hope because we hope in Jesus Christ, he will bring us home. So friends, today, let's keep returning to our Lord and keep remembering what he's done 